You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. I'd first like to give honor to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to each and every one of us that is covered under his blood. Um, before I move into my message this morning, I want to make sure that I give a special thank you to Tim for the, the beautiful welcome to this pulpit. And I want to make sure I say thank you to the leadership of this house for allowing me to occupy this space for a little while. I want to also extend a thank you to uh, Keith Barker, who gave me a wonderful tour of the massive city of Wilmore. And um, I want to make sure that I give a special thanks to Grace Carl again for welcoming me here. And, and I got here last night and I drove in, got to the, to the house where I'm staying. I had this wonderful gift bag and I was like a little kid crawling through it and experiencing all the little things that gave me, again, just another little bit of the flavor of this particular city and this town and the spirit of the people here. And of course, I want to make sure that I extend a thank you to Dr. Linda Stratford, who has been a longtime friend of mine. We shared on the board with SIVA, which is Christians in Visual Arts. And um, she is one of the, also one of the reasons why I'm here today at Asbury. The presentation I'm going to give you today is going to utilize some of my artwork. Um, the artwork that primarily I'm going to share with you is a printmaking process called linoleum cut. And some of it is called woodcuts. It is a, it's a process where I take this floor tile-like material I make an intricate drawing all over the surface of it. Then I use cutting tools in the shapes of V's and the shapes of U's, and I cut the negative space inside of these pieces of wood or pieces of linoleum. Then I take ink with a roll and I roll it over the surface of these blocks meticulously to make sure that I get the coverage over it all the, over the entire surface. Then I take paper and I lay it on top of these blocks and I run into thousands of pounds of pressure and then I pull the paper back off of these blocks and I'm revealed with the print. The beautiful thing about a printmaker is, is that you're able to make that message over and over and over again, the same, virtually the same impression and you're able to disseminate this message all around the world. It may remind some of you of like uh, Martin Luther and the use of the Gutenberg Press and the 95 Theses and to be able to take that information and disseminate it. So I like to liken my work very much like that, that I'm able to take and make these images and I'm able to pack them with stories and messages and so forth, and I'm able to disseminate them. So I wanted to make sure I give you that pre-talk so you have an idea of the things that you're gonna see on this screen. Now, depending on how far you are from here, some of the details are going to get lost by you, so I'm going to do my best to exegize these images and talk to you about the surface and the symbolic information that is embedded within the work and that you will see and how it intersects with the Scripture and taking that which we know as a, the, the biblical truths that are embedded and woven into my work and I'm bringing them to us right now and expressing the issues and things that we have been experiencing throughout history in this nation. Today's scripture comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a living epistle from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I first and foremost thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for allowing us to come into this chapel space. I thank you for drawing us through the droplets of rain that fall from the air and the sense of coldness that wraps around our bodies like a blanket. Oh God, I pray that you have nestled us in this space, that the words that they will hear and the images that they see will consecrate itself and that it will be implanted in each one's heart. Oh God, I pray that you use me as a tool right here upon this pulpit to speak to your people and that I be the first recipient of the fruit that you will pass through me in this moment. Oh God, I just ask you this day to allow us for a little while to take the seeds that you have and they were planted in our bodies and that they will manifest and they will grow and we can spread them all throughout this world. In your precious name we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen, amen, and amen. I created this image called living epistle. And if you interrogated the words, I read from the NIV and I actually changed one little section because they just changed it to letter because by definition, epistle means a letter, not like a letter A, B, C, D, E, F, or G, letter by as in a letter that one would write to another person. As we know of the epistles by Paul, which is about 13 attributed to him, I created this image to further take that whole idea and I paraphrased the text and I inscribed it upon this woman's body and it says, I am a living epistle written not within, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshy tables of the heart. If you look at the woman, you may passively see that she has one hand up and one hand down, but those things have meaning because in the early Christian church, what they would have sometimes is a maze or a labyrinth that would be outside of the church. And that labyrinth of maze, people would walk it. And when they would walk the, um, the, church, um, the, the, mat, the uh, labyrinth, they will walk it with their hands upraised. They will walk it upraised as a symbol of surrendering. And they would pray as they would work their way to the center. And once they got to the center, the hands would drop down by their sides. And then that became a symbol of acceptance. 
And so I have this woman in a double posture of praise, one of surrendering unto God and asking for God to speak into her heart, but another hand dropped down her side as a symbol of acceptance of what God has planted in her heart and how she must go out into the world and how she must move forward. At her belly it says living water, because he that believeth in me, as the scripture says, say out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. As I show a tried configuration of crosses about her body, which alludes to the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is protecting her in the midst of her journey. Because when we think about this idea of being a living epistle, or being a living letter, then every place we go, someone is looking at us and reading us. And as we come into an institutional structure as at Asbury, we're coming to the space where we are in, in, embracing faith everywhere we walk. And not only do we express those ideas that we are, are living and trying to walk with, we are going to take that which is planted in us from this space and we're going to go out into the world and we're going to hopefully touch other lives. But that first life is you. It's that we have to accept being that living epistle. I've tried my best to accept that role. And so one of the things that I did is I looked back into my upbringing in New Orleans, Louisiana. And one of the things that I was exposed to in New Orleans was jazz music. And there's a particular, particular music that's circulating around the jazz funeral, and it's called the dirge in the second line. But it has its origins and its foundations in the bambula, or the circle dance, which is located in an area called Congo Square, which is in Treme, which is the oldest African-American municipality in the United States, located in New Orleans, where they believe that jazz music was born. And so in this space is the image right here, is a drawing that shows a representation of people that are gathered at Congo Square on a Sunday because that was a time when, during the time of slavery that they would gather and they would practice a lot of the faith practices that they drew from Africa, bringing into America, colliding with Christianity into the, in this space, and they would begin to do these things called circle dances. Now, these circle dances would get to be really full of spirit and frenzy, as you see still remnants of it within the black church where you'll see a person begin to speak in tongues or the person begin to dance and express themselves in a way because they are allowing the Holy Spirit to move them. In this context, sometimes parts of articles of clothing may be removed, not as an act of lewdness, but it will be removed because it's all those things that are weighing them down upon this earth they're freeing themselves of. And one thing that's very true and evident within the African-American experience is it's very rooted to the ground, very rooted to the earth. And so when you see the person dance and see the person move and so forth, it's right in here. It's all inside the body right here. It's not up here. It's right in here. That whole movement and the person would dance and this whole series of the spirit would build within that space. You see, I told you the dirge is a mournful tune that will be played for a person that's being laid to rest. The musicians will purposely play music to get you to cry out. And then that music will transform into what we know as a second line, which is a two-four time syncopated music, musical formation. And that music will translate into a different sound is because once that person is laid to rest, no longer do we cry. 
No longer do we mourn that person because now we move into a space of celebration because that person has moved from this world into the afterlife into the ever-wanting and loving arms of God. So I've likened this idea to my work in that the dirge is the everyday. The dirge is the things that we go through that we have to confront. The dirge is those things, those issues that are embedded within our bodies and within our minds that we are troubled by, that we're trying to navigate, that we're trying to press through, that we're trying to live. It's those hard days, those mornings when you don't want to get up out of bed. That's the dirge. The dirge is those issues that you have with your family and those things that are happening between relationships. The dirge is those issues in terms of abuse. Those dirge is those issues of trying to fight back drugs. Those dirge is those fighting back those sexual pains that are pushing upon our bodies. The dirge is the issues that are happening in the streets. The people are dying in Minnesota, dying in Los Angeles. The dirge is those things that are all around around us that pull us down and wakes us up and say, why is it happening all over again? Why am I caught in this vicious cycle? The dirge is that pain that we feel that we can't seem to shake off. The question is, is there a balm for that dirge? Is there hope of renewal? And the answer is yes. You're in that space of hope. You're in the space of renewal. You chose to come to this institution. You chose the walk that you're walking. The dirge reminds us that the walk is not going to be easy. Just because you say, hey, I accept you, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and Savior, everything is not going to just be peaches and cream and the world is just going to flow with milk and honey and you just live in this wonderful life because I am a Christian, so therefore everything is all right. No, you're dealing with the reality of the everyday. And therefore, it is requiring of a daily dying to deal with those issues that may be on the micro level, but also may be on the macro level that lie outside of you. That's what that dirge and that second line represents for me. But I also must tell you what it means on the natural. You see, at a funeral, everybody will come out in support of the family. You see, the second line has another meaning. The second line is the community that comes out in support. But you probably also want in your mind, well, what's the first line? The first line is our life here on earth. The second line is the afterlife. The first line is the family that's associated with the person that's being laid to rest. And the second line is the community that comes out in support. So I want to use those principles as we think about these issues that we're dealing with on the micro level, on the macro level, is that I believe that it's important that this body comes together, that this body is sensitive to each other, that we can really look at each other. 
And we see that each and every one of us is that living epistle, and we got to look beyond the surface. You cannot stop by looking at my black skin, my male body that's six feet, six inches tall. If you stop there, you stop way too soon. You have to look beyond the surface and look towards the Spirit. I created this body of work that addresses it. This image, I tried to encapsulate the dirge. It was a lament piece for my professor, who was like a second father to me, who passed away in 2007 from a condition called pulmonary fibrosis, which is like a hardening of the lungs. And so I show the procession of musicians moving along, playing the dirge. And as I show, the woman got her arm draped around the child who holds inside of his hand an obituary as he's mourning and lamenting the loss of the father. But if you look very carefully, you will see they're moving along. You'll see the, the, the reverberation of sound echoing off of the horn. So I wanted to try to show the visual nature of what is going on in this space as I show you the above ground tunes at the top left of the compositional space. Because in New Orleans, you can't bury people below the ground because you end up hitting the water table and you don't want anybody floating down the street. That gets a little bit morbid, all right? And so in the composition, to the second composition is called the second line or the rebirth. But in the bottom right-hand side was the obituary, but now I replace it with the dove, which is passing through a window. Inside of this space, you see the musicians are pushing right towards you in that two-four syncopated time. And if you're not ready for New Orleans funeral, I'm going to let you know, you're going for the just really low like that. And then all of a sudden you go and you go for that. You're like, wait a minute, am I still at a funeral? Yes, you are. And they, the, the musicians are taking us on that journey. It's all the art forms working together in harmony to help us grapple with the issues that we have in our daily lives. And so that, that second line, musicians are moving with a syncopation and with energy. I want to show this idea of, this, of that living epistle and how it's worked out throughout history and also show the way in which music has been that balm for so many people. That balm I know that has been collectively working within the context of my own family. The image shows the fields. It shows the juxtaposition of the cotton fields and the cotton clubs as the musicians play the music and the people dance through the air with the lindy hop. There's a woman down on her knees in the fields. I know it's hard for you to see her, but she's down on her knees and she's singing a great praise unto God. I'm free. Praise the Lord. I'm free. No longer bound. No more chains holding me. My soul is resting and it's a blessing indeed. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, I'm free. Oh, she's singing her song unto God as she's singing in the fields and singing that the song will be a sweet savor unto God's ear and that it will bring about a freedom and liberation to the people. And if you push forward inside of the composition, you feel the energy from the fields flowing directly into the right now in terms of the foundations of hip-hop as we know it. As it starts in New York 
as you see those sounds coming in from the left of the compositional space as the guys are on the wheels, the wheels of steel mixing and making sounds, something from nothing, as they're taking these old songs and making new songs with them. The album thrown upon the ground is the Sugar Hill Gang. A hip hop, a hip to the hip to hip hip, a hop, you don't stop. But rock to the bang bang, boogie say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. Oh yes, all those sounds are coming back from the field songs. Those sounds come from the spirituals. Those sounds come from the church and they have been translated in multiple ways and they're embedded within the landscape as we know it. The sound is here amongst us in the everyday. Oh, it's in the sound of Minnie Rippleton who is on stage singing, Loving you is easy cause you're beautiful. Oh, and she has her hand up raised as a spirit of praise is wrapped around it as the woman makes her way towards the stage as the brothers in the back playing on the upright piano. And you see his house growing out of the top of it. And I put that there purposely because I wanted to show the power of the music in the ways in which when we say a musician is playing this tune, then we connect with them. And we say, well, he's playing my song or she's singing my song. That connection to them is because they're sharing with you the depths of their life and what they've gone through. And we're able to connect with those musicians and the power of their music and the power of their expression is because they're singing a place that is of truth. They're helping us to see and to see more deeply, more intimately. That's the power in which music and the arts play. As John Coltrane plays on his horn, a love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme. Art Blakey on the drums. Oh, Esperanza Spalding on the bass. A love supreme, a love supreme. Oh, if you look really carefully, you see that the sound is manifested as a ribbon that is emanating from his horn and it's pushing out. The name of this piece is called Communal Resurrection Song for Aya. Aya is an Adinkra symbol coming out of Ghana, Africa, which is a symbol of a fern, which is a symbol of endurance. That is the earring upon the woman on the right-hand side of the compositional space. The endurance symbol or the symbol of that fern is a symbol to us, again, to continue to endure, to continue to press on, to continue to find a way, to continue to work as a community, to continue to be that living epistle that I believe all of us are called to be. As you see that ribbon touching the housing projects in New Orleans, the housing projects in Chicago, the prison system in Sing Sing to the right of the compositional space, as the procession of musicians are moving through the streets. Do what you wanna, hang out on the corner. That's the street music of New Orleans that I grew up with, hearing those musicians pushing through the streets and playing over in the French quarters, down Bourbon and down Canal Street and doing the parades and the Mardi Gras and all those different things that you hear these musical sounds and their foundation goes all the way back to the fields, goes all the way back to those spirituals, goes all the way back to the church. And the expression of music has exploded and pushed across the field, and the remnants of it is still very much alive in all these different musical formations. But it was used as a balm of healing and restoration. That's part of the work as the artist is using our gifts, our skills, our tools to continue to illuminate the truth that is embedded within that book, to illuminate the truth that's embedded in the book of our lives. 
that gives you a context of the peace and its expression to the people. There's been so many people that have lived that epistle life, I believe, and one of them was Bessie Mitchell. You see, in 1948, Bessie Mitchell was a seamstress living in New York. Her brother and five of the guys were falsely accused of killing a white storm in Trenton, New Jersey. They were going through what was called the kangaroo court. And for those of you who don't know what a kangaroo court is, it's basically it's one day to go by the motions. They basically already have, have picked your in before we even started. They're just going through the motions. And so Bessie Mitchell, the seamstress, heard about what happened to her brother and could not believe. She says, there's no way he could have killed anyone. There's no way, absolutely no way. This has to be something made up. So she went to a guy who was part, connected to the Communist Party in that particular time period in the 40s. And he basically put this out into an international outcry and they had to retry the case. And when they retried it, they basically found that these issues were trumped up against these guys and found that they were coerced into saying that they committed these crimes because they were all randomly pulled off of the streets. And so inside of this jail cell, I, I placed the six bodies inside of there. And as you see them inside of the state, inside of the cage, you see stitching, attaching their bodies, one to the other, stitching, going from one body. And there's ways in which she took that needle and thread, and I believe in my mind's eye, and she basically created what I like to call a Bessie stitch. If we push forward to Rosa Parks in 1955, when she refused to give up her seat on that Montgomery bus, I have her sitting on the side, and I call this piece Rosa Sparks on purpose because her life was a spark. She used herself as that epistle again. As she sat down in that bus, and I put these different accoutrements on her body that comes from one of the things that Paul talked about, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and things in high places, and that he encouraged us all to put on the whole armor of God. And so she has a breastplate on her body. She has her feet are shod. Her head is covered with a protectedness. And if anybody got a psychology background, you know that this woman is not going to move because everything in her posture is telling you that she's not going to be moved. Her legs are crossed. Her arms are crossed. Her head is turned in such a way she's not even paying attention to the bus driver who's trying to tell her to give up her seat. But let us not forget, brothers and sisters, of that dirge and that second line that I told you that's always in existence, no matter what we're going through. Because in that same year, 1955, a young man by the name of Emmett Till lost his life in Money, Mississippi. Hence, that's why I have the guy to the top left of the compositional space with the E.T. upon his hat. You see, Emmett Till apparently made some gesture towards a white woman in one of the stores. And by the time he got home that night, they came and abducted him. They beat him. They shot him. They lynched him. They tied his body with an engine block and barbed wire, and they threw him into a lake. Three days later, his body was exhumed, and it was sent back to Chicago from whence he came. His mother saw the body of her beaten and bruised and slaughtered child, and she refused to put him in a closed casket. She put him in an open casket because she wanted the whole world to see what they did to her baby. But let us not forget because that was a whole decade of pain that we experienced in our nation because in 1965, Malcolm X lost his life. And in 1968, Martin Luther King lost his life in Memphis. 
And then if we keep moving and pressing forward, you see the guy with his hands up. But that's for Michael Brown. Hands up, don't shoot. If you see the boy to the left with a hoodie on his head and holding inside of his hands an Arizona tee, well, that's for Trayvon. And if you look really closely at his body, he has the letters K-O-O-L on him. No, that's not for cool, baby, cool. Cool is for a pack of cigarettes. Because that's for Eric Garner, who uttered the same words that we heard another gentleman say, I can't breathe. But I told you my work is not about leaving you in a place of despair or leaving a place of the dirge. It is to look forward, to look towards the second line. And if you look to the left of the composition, you see the mother with her arm wrapped around her child and the scripture laying upon her lap as she's reading to him the Beatitudes, as she's training her child to grapple with the issues that are within the self, but hopefully grapple with the issues communally, that we can do this together if we accept our role. Oh, I think about the college students in 1960 that look just like you, who left from North Carolina A&T down in Greensboro, North Carolina. And those four African-American men sat down at the Woolworth lunch counter that they could not be served at, but those guys sat there in the midst of that firestorm that came at them, and they also had that AOG on them, that armor of God, hence the patches on the shoulder of one of the characters. And you begin to see these helmets of righteousness upon their bodies. I call the piece assault of the earth because that is what we're supposed to be because if we're salt and it has no flavor or savor, then we're useless. It is the call upon our lives that we must step up to the plate and we must do whatever we can and mobilize and figure out a way to solve these issues that are taking place within our societal structure. Because if you look at the piece very carefully, you would note that I illuminated the word worth and I cut out the word wool because it really boils down to that woman that's on the right, which I pulled from an Edward Hopper painting and I inscribed into my piece because I wanted her there because she had a posture that suggested very clearly that role that I believe all of us sit at that crossroads of decision. Because she works there. She has a choice to not serve them because that's what the boss says or to serve them but risk losing her job, losing her status within the community because she is doing something that is going against the grain of that time period. How many of us are willing to put it on the line Notice I said the key word, us, or how many of us are willing to put it all on the line? How much do we really truly believe in the faith that we practice? Do we believe that we have that armor of God protecting us wherever we go? Do we believe that we can walk in with that attitude not of arrogance, but an attitude in knowing that we have the great and almighty God at our side leading us and guiding us and directing us and speaking unto our heart. Do we truly believe that? That's a question I think that we all need to ponder as we begin to ponder the worth of not only ourselves, 
but our brothers and our sisters. This piece here is called So, and it's an image where I play off of the phonetics of the word S-O-W or S-E-W, but I chose S-O-W because I was thinking about the context of seeds as this piece is a tribute to my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, and my oldest sister, who are all sores within my family. And as the story goes to the top left, which is illuminated from the composition, is a representation of my grandmother, my great-grandmother, who escaped from indentured servitude by hiding two of our kids underneath our hoop dress. One of those kids underneath her dress was my grandmother. My grandmother gives birth to my mother. My mother gives birth to my sister and my other two siblings. And that is a passing on of that improvisational survival, just like jazz music is that improvisational kind of making of sounds and music and riffing one to the other, of taking the discarded elements and seeing that there's still beauty and worth embedded in those items. That's a power I believe that we all have, that we all can display, that we all need to tap into. And I'm gonna, share, I'm gonna lastly share with you a series of images of the art and faith in action. This is a project I did with a man by the name of Hannibal Lacombe. This is a tribute to the nine people who were slain at Mother Manuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. You see that woman on the left holding a big purse? Well, that woman, her name is Sarah Collins. Now, it may not resonate with anyone who Sarah Collins is, but she is the lone survivor of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in 1963. Now, we typically hear of four little girls dying in that church bombing, but there was a fifth child there. She was the sister to Addie Mae Collins. That fifth child is now an evangelist, and she travels around the world spreading a message of love, of hope, and renewal. Don't you see, folks? I'm trying to paint a picture for you of these living epistles that have been doing this work right in front of our faces, and they're doing it without any fanfare. They're doing it because they are called and compelled by that word that is in this book that calling that is within their own personal lives as we deal with our own personal issues, our own personal dirge, and is that call upon us to do it collectively that we go out and we be that second line. That was in front of the church and made these banners that we processed through the streets and they became another symbol of the church on the move. And I'm going to rapidly go through. And that was our service. We were all cloaked in white, symbol of the Holy Spirit. And each banner was for those people who were slain at Mother Emmanuel. And this is a project I did at the college where I work at right now. And it's a tribute to the first three African-Americans that were resident students at William & Mary in 1967. And you say, oh, that's like 54 years ago. Let's put it into full context. William Mary is the second oldest university in the United States after Harvard University. William Mary was founded in 1693. So that's about 275 years go by before you had the first three African Americans to live on a campus. Folks, that's part of our dirge that we have to grapple with. That's part of our history. This is a project that I did 
as part of a conference, SEBA conference in St. Paul, Minnesota in 2019. Every one of those patches were drawn by different people that came up, just like you random folks. Some people, most of the people there, of course, were artists, but they all came and filled in one of those patches because we wanted to do something that represented the communal body. And then the Lynx Project, I worked with over 500 people, young as 11, as old as 87. They made the individualized pieces. I even traveled to Cape Town, South Africa, and we made a whole presentation in front of the Wren Building, which is the oldest continuous academic building in the United States. And we inked the blocks up after we brought them all together. We ran a steamroller across it and pulled the pages back. And then we took all those images and we placed them into the Muscarelli Museum. And we invited people to come and see and to find. And we talked to each of us about being fishers of men as we spread this message and this word. And so lastly, I leave you with this image, which I called, Who is My Neighbor? as a woman walks up to it, a piece in an art show. She's pondering its meaning as white people and black people are joined together at the March on Washington in 1963. And this is in 2020. And it's a call for us all to know that we are all carriers of generations.